0: You know about the monkey selfies. Refreshment. I mean, I think that this is an example of what you're talking about. That these. Is this an
1: intellectual property law question? Yeah,
0: the monkeys took pictures of themselves using cameras. And the question arose of who owns the intellectual property in the pictures. It was a British photographer, but it came. In December 2014, the United States Copyright Office stated, so it came into the U.S. jurisdiction, stated that works created by non humans are not subject to U.S. copyright. In 2016, a U.S. federal judge ruled that the monkey cannot own the copyright to the images. So the question was, did the photographer who set the camera there own it, or does the monkey own the cop- copyright? Or is it in the public domain? And, and what they ultimately ruled is that the picture is an act of nature, which cannot be owned. Like that's the sunset. The sunset cannot be you can't copyright the sunset. You can copyright a picture of the sunset, but the sunset itself is is an act of nature.
1: That is blowing my mind. I mean, imagine that, right? Like imagine imagine an AI that writes a hip hop like the pop R&B single of the year 2032. Right. Who owns that? If Sony owns the AI, if if the AI is running on a server that's owned by Sony, does that mean but Sony owns the rights, or does that mean it's in the public domain? Does that mean it's an act of nature? Yeah. And if anything, do we revert to a world where. Oh, man, my <laughs> head's getting turned into a pretzel.
0: <laughs> Tell me about the USDA. In the be- At the beginning of February, the USDA, this is according to the Washington Post, the USDA on Friday abruptly removed inspection reports and other information from its website about the treatment of animals at thousands of research laboratories, zoos, dog breeding operations, and other facilities. This was big news in my household. Yeah. My wife is a huge, I mean, I am too, but she, you know, animal rights is one of her big causes mm-hmm. and we are, for example, we are cruelty free, so all of our soaps, shampoos and stuff are not tested on animals. So I was wondering where did this where did animal rights come from? Because before I met Sarah I wasn't really aware of it at all. I want to chime in quickly and say
1: that I've always full disclosure, I've always considered animal rights activists to be like on the loopier end of the yeah, spectrum. Absolutely. and as I've gotten older, I'd become way more fascinated by it and way mm-hmm. more interested in it and way more persuaded by it. And like, I don't think I'm at like the activist level yet, but I think I'm definitely trending in that direction. And I think, I think it's a shockingly under discussed um, in terms of the, again, in terms of the general zeitgeist, the people that are um, very passionate about animal rights t- discuss it often. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, you know, when it is discussed in, let's say the news media, it's to, um, snarkily remark upon a new PETA ad campaign or right. something like
0: that. Would you be shocked if I told you that Americans invented the animal rights cause, that its birthplace was in the United States?
1: I don't know if I'd be shocked. I, w- I would definitely like to hear more about it, although I feel like a lot of things were born in the United <laughs> right, States. Right, just... Not most like things, but like many Age of things. Enlightenment
0: type of yeah. ideas. So it wasn't, but it was close. The first law was passed in Ireland in 1635. The second one was just six years later in 1641. The Massachusetts General Court enacted its comprehensive legal code, the Body of Liberties. It prohibited, quote, any tyranny or cruelty towards any brute creature which are usually kept for man's use. Mandated periodic rest and refreshment. And uh, some of the things like that it was trying to prevent against are disgusting, even... I don't know, even by today's standards, or especially by today's standards, in terms of, like, tying plows to the horse's t- tail, you know? Yeah. That, I, I tell Sarah that I don't like to read a lot about this because it just, like, depresses me too much. Yeah. One thing
1: that's very interesting to me um, is, like, a kind of a religious cultural context for some of this stuff. So um, the Abrahamic r- religions sure. um, all kind of start with a story in which human is part of nature. Human is um, tempted by nature. Uh Human is deceived by nature. Uh And human then needs to be uh, expelled from or exiled from uh, nature. And in that moment, life becomes hard, right? So the snake, right, uh, is... A representation of the natural world, right? Mm-hmm. It's the only it's the only um, animal other than a human being that gets like a speaking role <laughs> in Genesis one, um, and I think a, a strong case could be made for a Western uh, Christian, Islamic, and and Judaic mistrust of nature.
0: So you like, okay? You, so you I start follow, but, but yeah. So where are you going with that?
1: So where I'm going with that is. Um, we're working against really deeply held cultural beliefs and cultural ideologies. And you, your next question might be, why do we have to go against that? What's interesting is that you also, I think, can't not mention um, the history of basically white men dividing society of individual specimens and communities of Homo sapiens um, as not human, and casting them into the kind of animal bin, oh, right uh-huh. in terms of its le- in terms right. of their legal designation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, chattel law, right? right, and the law of slavery was largely tied to the laws that applied to oxen and other yeah. um, farm animals. Fast forward to today, or this period in time, and We've over time realized over and over again that we've made mistakes, right? Oh, like actually those Native Americans are human beings, right? Oh, those black people are human beings. Ooh, the women can't like are full legal beings. Um, and these are all like shockingly recent realizations. Mm-hmm. So I think a core question that we need to talk about is let's, let's take the word human being out of it, right? I'm going to okay. use a new word. Person, Mm -hmm. Okay? Different. Person, right? And the concept of personhood, what does the legal designation of personhood mean today? And why? And how might that definition change and morph in one direction or the other Mm -hmm.
0: um, in the coming years?
1: Is that a focus enough question?
0: Yeah. But I'm still... You took a circuitous route to get here. Okay. But I'm with you. Continue.
1: So I I really did mean it as a as a direct oh. question to you. Um so l- let's let's look at it this way. So I think something that is a, a pretty common framework for understanding the the merit and um uh like let's say legal rights of of a, a being is Tied to its sentience, right? It's tied to its awareness, tied to its consciousness. Currently, the framework that most people and most legal systems use is biology, and it favors... Well, it's really kind of ad hoc to what happens, right? right? <laughs> um, we have this like kind of mammalian favoritism going on, and the closer related loosely, either biologically or socially, which gets very weird, to an animal, the kind of greater legal protections that it has. So you've got chimpanzees and, and gorillas right. right that are very genetically similar to human beings right. um and then you've got dogs that are not very genetically similar to human beings but have a long and storied history kind of coexisting with human beings and therefore have special designation
0: mm-hmm. um but i don't but are you talking from a legal standpoint i don't see how the government protects chimpanzees and gorillas more than it protects l- lemurs
1: uh, well, it probably shouldn't because lemurs are the next closest to related oh, to human beings. Uh, but sea cucumbers, right, might be very different. Or um,
0: what are the prairie dogs?
1: So this is something that I, we should get a lawyer to talk to us about <laughs> because, yeah, I'm going to get out of my depth in the legal discussion. Because there's, there's like the law of like there's like exotic animal laws, right? right? There are chattel laws. There are... Um, Specific like domesticated household pet laws, right? Animal certain animal cruelty laws that apply to dogs and cats that don't apply to lobsters or even sheep, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sheep probably fall under chattel law.
0: Then you've got then you've got a whole designation. Like you've got the endangered species list, right? Right. What I feel like you're heading toward is like the personhood for dolphins. So do dolphins deserve personhood? That's the argument that I've heard.
1: Where I'm going with this, so what I would what I would propose as a framework is that we look at it on a spectrum of sentience, awareness, etc., and we give greater legal protections and rights to um, animals that have um, higher cognitive faculties, um, th- the ability to not only sense pain but remember pain and alter their behaviors to avoid pain. Those that have uh, demonstrated in some cases, highly sophisticated social structures, mm-hmm. um, customs, rituals, etc. And there are some interesting groups, right? So let's start with the the great apes, right? That are the closest related to us, sure. and I think that's kind of a, to me a no brainer. Um, you can extend that out into a lot of other primates. Then you have then you have cetaceans, which are Butch- uh, whales, dolphins, uh-huh. orcas, etc. You also have cephalopods. You have uh, octopi and squid that have uh, tremendously sophisticated intelligences, although very, very different from our own. Mm-hmm. A lot of bird species, mm-hmm. crows, um, have shown the ability to remember mm-hmm. um, over long periods of time to identify individual human beings' faces and mm-hmm. um, and protect uh, the rest of their uh, social group from uh, individual human beings that have uh, harassed or accosted um, them at
0: any point in time in history. So I'm with you, except I don't understand what you're proposing or so uh, or arguing against giving them
1: so i would say that's a great question to focus it giving them like american citizenship and passports isn't really a reasonable framework not because they don't deserve it but because like the 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 benefits that come with let's say an american citizenship and passport don't apply to dolphins they don't they don't speak our language. They don't think the way we do. They don't live amongst us and therefore don't engage in our culture and society. Mm-hmm. Um, and a citizenship and a passport is a societal or cultural trapping, right. right? But could legal personhood be granted to a dolphin such that killing a dolphin is murder or something like murder or manslaughter? Uh-huh. Could a dolphin be protected? such that it has the right to move freely about its habitat or that its habitat could be protected from destruction right uh, in the same way that uh, property rights apply to right. to individuals or groups of people um, i think that gets that gets very interesting because that would give not only the animal rights community but it would give the environmentalist community a lot more t- like legal tools levers to mm-hmm. use to try to enact public policy in a way that, that protects both the environment and the, the individual species living in the environment. But it's
0: got to be already illegal to, well, I mean, it's got to be illegal to kill most of those animals that you just named. I,
1: um, it depends on where you are.
0: The problem also, and it though, depends on how you kill them. is enforcement. And enforcement. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. the uh, dolphin's widow is not going to call 911. You're absolutely right. Um, I'm with it.
1: I didn't mean to shut no, down your No, argument. you're not shutting me down. I, I think it's interesting. Like, certainly I think that there are um, – you know what? I don't know. Why Why am I talking about something I don't know about? I, I wish we had, like – I wish we had, like, an animal rights lawyer to talk to. And maybe we should table this one until we can find someone that we can, like, interview. Because I have, like, a ton of questions. And I can – I can – I think speak with more specificity about how some of the motives here are like not just for animal rights in and of themselves, Mm -hmm. but there's like a, um, there's this scary line from a, from a book that I'm reading right now, Homo Deus by Yuval Harari. And in it just, it's like a, it's on the, it's on the jacket and it says, um, it refers to um, the way the way we treat animals today is likely how superhuman intelligences, how artificial general intelligence, et cetera, will view and treat us, oh, and treat unmodified hum, human beings in the uh-huh. future. I think also there's a risk that you think about if you take a... Human exceptionalism kind of viewpoint of mm-hmm. animal intelligence, um, which I think is easy, and there are some empirical ways in which, like you know, our neuron density, etc., is is exceptional. You can still you paint almost a spectrum from like bacteria to human right. beings, right? Um, and and what I'm saying is maybe we ex, we extend the cone of value out beyond humanity to the right. to the beings that are closest to us. That applies today to those that are kind of close to us or. I think pigs are another interesting Mm -hmm. example that would have a lot of big industrial ramifications if Mm they were given special personhood. But then it raises the question of what happens on the other end. So I think I snarkily wrote in our Google Doc the big three, right? There's animals, there's AI, and there's aliens, right? right? We could meet them. Um, Far more likely, though, is that um, intelligences of our own invention, synthetic synthetic intelligences of our own invention, will be in our world in the coming uh-huh. decades and will be as smart or smarter than us. And I think it's important that we iron out the legal and ethical framework for how we deal with a world of, I, I was going to say neurodiversity, mm-hmm. but that artificial, artificial. <laughs> well, A, it means something else, and B, artificial general intelligence, probably one of neurons. So um, <laughs> whatever you would call diversity of intelligence, I think... Uh, I think it's important. I, I, now, I, I've been monologuing so long and so unclearly that I, no, I am that self-conscious. Part that and you I,
0: said makes sense, that we have to develop a, a legal framework. Because a lot of what you're saying sounds like moral and ethical questions, but I don't understand its legal repercussions or its policy repercussions, other than, like, believing that we should have an endangered species list, which this administration doesn't necessarily seem to believe. But what you just said, that, like... Leaving aliens aside, AI is coming. That is most likely coming in our lifetime. And there is nothing currently that will prepare the legal system for that. I mean, there's no analog. And so I see what you're saying, that the closest one might be how we treat dogs and dolphins and cats and pigs and cows because cows are separate. Because they are not human, but they have some degree of intelligence. The difference will be robot AI is not human and has a greater degree of intelligence. Yeah. So Jesus, it might be that it's not our problem to deal with; that it's the robot's problem to deal with. How, how that we're the problem? To I deal
1: think with. that's scary, though. We d- let's say we don't do the work, uh-huh. and we just leave it as it is. And when artificial general intelligence arises rather than welcoming it welcome like you've just been born welcome Mm -hmm. to the earth this is all we have to offer every play that's ever been written every song that's (laughs) ever been composed right instead we say get to work Um, I own you I made you you're now an unpaid laborer for me does that increase the odds that there will be some sort of resentment um, that arises. I I can poke holes in that only because resentment's an emotional, an emotional artifact that superintelligence may not share. Mm-hmm. Although we evolved emotions and they have been adaptive for surviving in the world right. and being socially organized creatures. So that's not to say that like even if we didn't program. Right, that they would develop
0: it themselves.
1: Right, if it's adaptive, right, if it helps them survive and navigate the world around them. I mean, it's kind of like pain, right? Could you navigate and live in the physical world without pain or would you not be able to walk one mile without dying because of any number of uh, injuries that you might sustain? Um, Even if we design AI without pain, Will it give itself pain? Whoa.
0: And it, it really geez. exists. This is terrifying to think about because, like, I was just running through the amendments, the Bill of Rights in my mind. And it's like, does AI deserve freedom of speech? If, I mean, look at what Internet trolls can do to a person now. Imagine what AI could do, how AI could ruin a person's life. Does AI deserve the Second Amendment? Does AI deserve the Fourth Amendment where they're a search and seizure, right? Do we have the right to go look inside of an AI's code, if that's even how it works? Do they deserve the Fifth Amendment where they don't have to incriminate themselves? Or do they have a right to a fair trial? Jesus. And how would you even conduct that? A fair trial? You have to impanel a jury of 12 AIs. AIs.
1: It's a really interesting question because let's just like there are raging debates over um over the false anthropomorphization of software and or animals and mm-hmm. saying that like this is this whole conversation is dumb because when AGI arises um it will be so fundamentally different from human intelligence that we won't even be able to uh, like understand one another mm-hmm. and it's fu- it's functionally useless right. to discuss these topics but I think um, it's almost the – is was it Rene Descartes the, about religion when he said like uh, if I say I'm a believer and God doesn't exist, I, there's oh, like right. n- no skin off my back. I'm paraphrasing obviously. Yeah. Um, but if he does, like it's like I'm, I'm hedging my bets, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, to me it seems like the most prudent bet hedge of all time. Like if we know AGI is coming and we just assume it's going to be a good – faithful little um infinite accounting machine you know bean mm-hmm. counting machine mm-hmm. um and it ends up being a good faithful bean counting machine no, right. no skin off our back right. um but if we assume it's going to be a good faithful bean counting machine and it ends up resenting us hating us and wanting to rebel against us right that could be a very dangerous birth, right? Like that's a that's a very dangerous origin story. Jesus, and I think if we look at the history of slavery, it's an interesting example. Like here's one: if if I imagine I'm a imagine I'm a, a super genius computer programmer, and I on this laptop right here um, program an AI, mm-hmm. and it can think, feel. Uh, understand its own existence mm-hmm. and communicate with me. Am I allowed to delete it? Can I delete the program? Do I have that right? Do I can I turn it off? Can I copy it? Can I profit from its labor? Mm-hmm. It could you even call that labor? That's something I was thinking about with the Bill Gates video where he says we should tax robots labor means something very clear right. to you and me because we have bodies that pr- perspire and r- respire and metabolize right. calories and so labor is a very clear idea but if you are a thousand servers scattered across the face of the earth and you're moving electrons around like what is labor you could say that the labor is just the financial value of the right the the byproduct right right but then it goes uh, how could you even measure that what if it's something like facebook where the what's the value of facebook's like what is facebook (laughs) is facebook one thing is facebook a federation of things is it the timeline and photos and the ad serving algorithm right is that all one thing or is that a bunch of different things? Would you account for those things differently? I mean, it just, it, my po- I don't mean to be pedantic and or long-winded, but I'm being both. My, my point is that it just blows our framework apart. We have no framework to discuss these things because we take a human, not even human-centric, a human-only view of how we organize our society and our world around us, our legal system, et cetera, our culture, and that will come to an end. Jeez. So the question is: Do we do the homework now, in a test bed that we're comfortable with and right. that we have experience with, and that is the animal kingdom? I always used to get into this argument with my, my grandfather, who was one of these um, one of these conservative guys that loves to just take a good old fashioned <laughs> take an elbow to the the 1990s uh, example of conservationism, which was the the spotted owl thing. You remember uh-huh. the spotted owls, yeah?
0: Um, I mean, actually, no, but I I feel like I've heard about it. Like, there's a, yeah, they talk about it in the West Wing.
1: Yeah, so it was like in the early, I believe it was the early 1990s, there was a big court case It might have been a Supreme Court case, but it was basically a, an, I believe, an Oregonian uh, lumber company, like a huge, wealthy, powerful lumber company whose business was being impacted by uh, habitat preservation of, uh, spotted Barn Owl or something mm-hmm. And it was just one of those stories That kind of went viral in its day You can real time fact check me if you'd like um, i looking at something else Okay And um, the whole point is this My, my grandfather likes to elbow um, mm-hmm. That and like laugh about it This has become one of my favorite <sighs> Now I feel like I'm going to go down a weird tangent But hear me out do you ever have different strategies for communicating a point to people based
0: on their no, own but own I should. View?
1: So for me, like I, I, I argue things very differently with my conservative family members to try to get through to them uh-huh. than I would to like you, right? And the way I do it is, I, I know my grandfather's never going to be convinced that like uh, for like from my hippie worldview that like spotted barn owls are um, noble and right. worthy of uh, r- respect um, and their habitat is also um, beautiful and inherently valuable to the world and the community and the state and the people. He'd never buy that. He would kick me out of the house. Right. What he would buy is kind of a very intellectual property, business oriented, capital oriented view of things. Mm -hmm. And that's how I kind of argue it um, with him and to some great effect. So I basically say, um, think of how many uh, billions of dollars of, um, inventions and intellectual capital have been created through biomimicry, right? Studying mm-hmm. how trees grow, right. gecko toes stick to walls, et cetera. Um, in every animal, right, there is an answer to an, a, a question of adaptation in an environment. Every single of those 8.7 million species on the face of the earth is an answer to a question, in some, many of those cases, we don't know what that question is. Right. But it seems super cavalier to me to just bold like, to just burn it to the ground, right? Just f- forget the spotted owls.
0: Okay. So you really touched on something that I, I want to point out, but it is a very cynical thing to say. But Go, I'll say it. To, um, others have said it, which is that from what I read, the early animal rights movement seems to be growing in American history when you look back. In tandem with the abolitionist movement, and a lot of times in the 1800s, you had the same groups of people working to achieve both. Now, I'm certainly not trying to say that the four million people who were held in slavery are an, are equal to animals, but it was this these like progressive New England. Uh, evangelical Christians that were pushing both movements during the mid-1800s. Now, the difference, well, I would argue that there are two major differences. One, one is talking about human beings, which, from our point of view, are more important. But two, the economics suddenly favored abolition, right? That when you look at industrialization in England and the, you know, and throughout Western Europe, it's suddenly the tide turned and that's what Pushed all these countries to free their slaves, right? And that nothing like that has come for yeah. animals. But I think that what you're but saying is such a great way to position the argument because, like, yeah, if you can make it, if you can relate it to dollars and cents, then you're not going to have any trouble convincing us on the left of the need for animal rights. You're gonna have a little bit of trouble, but if you can make the argument palatable to both sides, and there's a way to there's a way to frame it for both sides, then like, well, there's a slam a, dunk to use Iraq War terms, right? Well,
1: so there's like a there's like an information there's like an information preservation, like almost like an like a biological archive value, I think, to biodiversity. But there's also um, to the, to your point about industrialization and kind of economic changes in. Emboldening, and at the at the at the top of the funnel, emboldening abolitionists, and at the bottom of the funnel, decreasing the financial interest of holding slaves. I think a lot of changes like that are coming in the coming decades too. Right? You've got um, synthetic meat that is uh, coming down in price. Right. Um, You have um, three D printing of food as a potential revolution coming in in food production and transportation. Um, Oh, wow. I I could talk to you about that 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 forever. There's an amazing, I think it's a Planet Money. It was either Planet Money or um, Freakonomics podcast episode a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, about the economics of food waste, which are staggering. But in the near future, when Wolfgang Puck, instead of being in a restaurant, can use um, uh, build a CAD model, of, uh, of a pizza at a molecular level mm-hmm. and then sell you the, the rights to infinite Wolfgang Puck uh, goat cheese pizza and you have an appliance in your kitchen, like a microwave, that a pipe going to it or several pipes going right. to it instead of water or electricity is like carbon and right. argon and nitrogen, right? Um, and that's being assembled for you and your food waste is being broken down and recycled. I mean, that that's the Star Trek version of the future. Or Willy Wonka. So that's the Star Trek version of the future, which I think is coming sooner than you think it is. But, like, today they can grow in a Petri dish meat, like beef, like hamburger patty, that you would not be able to taste the difference between a, a slaughtered cow hamburger patty and a hamburger patty grown in a Petri dish. That costs probably a quarter of a million dollars per (laughs) pound, right?
0: Right.
1: So it's cost prohibitive right now. now. But in five or 10 years, it may not be. So then the question becomes, if you can supply every McDonald's in North America, Mm -hmm. let alone the world, with inexpensive, healthy, organic, Mm lab-grown beef and then save the physical space and time of herding and feeding and slaughtering and transporting those cows... I was like, "Why would you like?" It's a really messy way of getting meat into a person's stomach, mm. right? Yeah, um, similar to the way that like, do we talk recently about how human beings, even when artificial general intelligence comes around, human beings are still gonna be the they're gonna be the cheapest, most resilient, and like failure tolerant supercomputers that money can buy for maybe a century. Like, so even in a world where there is AGI. What do you need? You need 2,000 calories a day? Yeah. You you can get that off of uh, of a couple sandwiches. Yeah, I already do. (laughs) uh, In terms of watt hours, I think it's the equivalent of about – it's like under 10 watt hours that you run on, that all of you runs on. That's less than an energy-efficient light bulb that you are able to eat, think, compose screenplays, uh, love your wife, think about your, your memories as a child is all bought. You run off less than an energy efficient light bulb, and so even when we can make uh, synthetic intelligence that is as smart as Eddie Quintana, um, at first it's going to be, at first it's going to take every spare computing cycle in every server in the whole wide world. And then when we get it down into the package that it's the size of Eddie Quintana, which could take t- ten years or twenty years, then it's still going to be prohibitively expensive and cost a lot of it, right. and take a lot of energy. That doesn't mean it'll never happen, but I think we're going to have artificial general intelligence soon. But when you have a 150-pound artificial uh, – 150-pound artificial general intelligence that can walk around the world and get like – and like fall off a bicycle or get punched in the face um, and eat a Mm. turkey sandwich and do all of that. Uh, for the energy savings and, and reliability that you do, that could take a century or two or three to get to that point. So I don't think humans are threatened completely. But wow. it really casts the value of humanity in a very different light. And it also casts the value of the animal kingdom right. um, in a different light, too. Because there is value um, to, to you based on what you know. And there's value to you in what you contain. And that's not just what you've learned in 16 years of school, right? That's also you as the conclusion of an unbroken chain of of creatures that have successfully reproduced and lived to reproductive age that goes back to the first bacterium that ever existed on the earth. That is an unbroken chain to you. So you have in your body genetic information that is valuable and so does a barn owl and so does a dolphin and so does a cow. If, just because we don't know what the value of that information is yet doesn't mean we should go around willy-nilly burning it to the ground. Right. It's astounding. And I think something we keep coming back to again and we're going to keep coming back to forever is um, human beings are really, really bad at thinking exponentially. And we live in an exponential world. And there are ways that that's going to hurt a lot of people if, we don't, if we're not thoughtful about it up, up front Um, One of those ways that we've been talking about today is our treatment of animals, our thinking about biodiversity, our efforts for habitat preservation. These are all important things, not just because they're important in and of themselves, but because they give us
0: frameworks for a better future for ourselves. Should we kill it? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Robot F. Kennedy. I'm Eddie Quintana. You can find me on Twitter at at Eddie Quintana.
1: And I'm Nick Daze. You can find me on Twitter at
0: symbol, Nick, Daze, D-A-Z-E. I didn't know if you should say at, at. At, at. You said at symbol. And then I also don't know if I should spell my name. I say it fast. Q-U-I-N-T-A-N-A. I figure it out. I shouldn't spell mine. <laughs> should we redo it? No. No, I think this should
1: all be part of it. It's <laughs> our so first time, everyone. Please be um, kind.
0: However you found us, go back there and like it or subscribe or do all the things that people who listen to podcasts do.
1: Um, thank you very much for listening, and um, we hope you'll join us next time.
0: Yep.